Welcome everyone. This is Pariah Nation and I'm going to be your host today. My name is Adnan Shafi, as you guys know me from TikTok, etc. So today we're going to be discussing a topic that's very close to my heart and very far away from the hearts of other people. <laughs> we're going to be discussing Pan-Africanism and um, obviously the different perspectives that people have on it. We're going to be looking at its practicalities or if it's just something that we describe as fantasy. So as usual, we'll, <clears throat> we got uh, two, I'll call them scholars because that's what they are. They, they are avid readers and the people who are always searching for truth, whether it's in books, whether it's in podcasts, whether it's on YouTube. Uh, I'd just like to welcome Akoto and Mikhail. Obviously, we'll just do a short intro for the new people who haven't uh, been introduced to you guys. Let's start with Akoto. Just tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Akoto Lubai, and I'm 19, and I'm currently a student at Strathmore University in Nairobi. Okay, thank you for that. And then Mikhail? Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mikhail Nyamoya. Uh, I'm a fourth-year student at USIU. Um, I'm almost turning 23 years old, and uh, yeah, I'm an international relations student. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'm so I'm so excited to <clears throat> to be having this discussion, and uh, definitely it's one that's very pertinent in these times where we feel like Africa is being afflicted with a lot of challenges, and Pan Africanism has been seen as a wide solution to this problem. So we're gonna get right into it, and we're just gonna start talking about the the roots of Pan Africanism. So obviously Pan-Africanism, the concept by itself actually wasn't started by native Africans. It was actually started in the diaspora. We have people hinting towards that like W.E.B. Du Bois, um, who was I think one of the first black professors to you know, be from Harvard, right? And then obviously there's the first Pan-African conference in the early 1900s. And then obviously over time it slowly became an African concept. And so people sort of picked that up during independence. We have um, people like Kwame Nkrumah who are arguing that you know, Ghana, since it was the first majority black, um, majority black, you know, nation, right, to get independence, that from there, it was only going to be independent if the rest of Africa was independent. So apart from that, we'll just get right into it. Um, I want to ask, first of all, the major question, when we talk about Pan-Africanism, who are we, who are we uniting? Who are these Africans that we are uniting? That's a very big question. Um, because uh, I'll, I'll just state two points of contention, right? There are certain groups who sometimes I've, I've had discussions with people from these groups, obviously it might not be representative, but for example, some North Africans don't actually think they're African, right? And they think that they share more with Arabs culturally than Africans. Um, just, would you like to tell me your comments on that? Like, do you think that North Africans should be included in this concept of Pan-Africanism or is this something that we're going to discount for the entire thing? I think it solely depends on context. Um, Dr. Ali Mazuri talks about um, who an African is. He attempts to explain who an African is. And he talks about um, an African being one emanating from the, an African of the soil. Um, that's an African of the blood. That's now by virtue of genetics, genealogy, and all that. And he also talks by a simple realization of being an African. All these three factors entail what constitutes an African. And onto the Arab um, context, I think it is a little bit debatable because it is entirely upon them. Um, just in the same way colonialism was imposed upon us, 
we couldn't say that also they should share in this pan-Africanism spirit. So I think it depends with them. It really depends. It's really upon them to determine if they would want to be part of this or if they don't want to. That's if pan-Africanism is a reality. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting point. Uh, Akut, would you like to add and then I'll also add my two cents? Um, okay, I'd like to say, yes, North Africans technically are Africans. But if they do not view themselves as such, I don't see the point of forcing them to be Africans. But at the same time, I'd like to say, um, if they do not view themselves as African, then when the rest of Africa, of which when people use this term Sub-Saharan Africa, I just find it shorthand for black majority Africa to separate the rest of Africa from North Africa. Uh, when the rest of Africa has pushed itself forward, they should not want to now jump on the gravy train and call themselves African. Case in point was when Morocco was bidding to host the 2014 World Cup. And at that time, Morocco had not yet rejoined the African Union and it had left the African Union early after it recognized the sovereignty of Western Sahara as a state. Then, Morocco tried to have a joint World Cup bid with Spain, then tried to pretend it is African to convince other African countries to vote for Morocco and Spain's joint bid. And Morocco was shown you cannot choose to be African only when it suits you. And other African countries voted against Morocco at FIFA. So I just like to say, if you don't view yourself as African, then do not be African when it is convenient. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I'll just add my two cents and then I'll yield to Mikhail as well. I mean, okay, let's first look at the roots. Sub-Saharan Africa, I can't remember the name of the anthropologist, but I was listening to another interesting podcast called It's a Continent Podcast. To all my listeners, guys, Pariah family, go ahead and listen to It's a Continent Podcast. Uh, they're doing a lot of good stuff. They have a series on, I think, um, it's different sort of ideologies, all that different stuff. And I think they're talking about Steve Biko and the idea of Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Um, this was a term that was literally birthed from, you know, a previous racial term used to describe the Black Africa, essentially. So that even the, the term Sub-Saharan Africa, I tried to shy away from it because what is it implying? It's like, you know, it's this sort of splitting Africa in a sort of way where people are like, oh, so this is the most civilized part of Africa and this is the less civilized part of Africa. And I mean, we've experienced this sort of thing where sometimes some North Africans don't necessarily claim um, you know, what's it called, you know, so these other African countries, right? So here's my question though. I think you're totally right. You need people to actually want to be a part of it. And obviously there's certain perks, but here's what I would say, right? You, you wanna talk about, <clears throat> I mean, someone argued with me in my comment section about, oh, uh, we share more with Arabs than we do with Africans. And I was thinking about it. Don't the Swahili people also share stuff? I mean, you share some sort of, you know, culture with Arabs. Is that not the case as well? And here's my point. Africa, even like Mauritius, for example, they share a lot with like, you know, India, uh, the same thing with Madagascar. You know, they have a lot of different groups that are mixing in there. My point is that that's a non-starter argument, right? Because you can talk about, oh, you have comparisons. You maybe share a language, right? <clears throat> so if you're using that, you have to be consistent, right? We're talking about the unity of all Africans people, right? all African peoples here, right? The people in Kenya are radically different to those in Nigeria, even though we have shared issues and we have a shared history in terms of colonialism and all this different stuff. So I would personally say, right, instead of focusing on, oh, we don't necessarily share culture, 
right? Because that's going to go into this sort of endless loop of arguments of, oh, we share more with these people. Oh, we share more with these people. So should French, I mean, <clears throat> should the West Africans that were colonized by France, should they unite with France, right? Because they speak the same language. They have, you know, all these different cultural things that they also inherited. This is my question, right? So for me, it's like, you know, it's, on, it's less about culture and it's more about shared issues. And I'm always the one to move for that pragmatic point of view. Mikhail, I believe you wanted to add something. Yes, I just wanted to add what Akoto said, and this is in the aspect of Morocco. Um, it is usually in international relations, we usually say that Morocco aligns itself more with Europe than with Africa. The EU holds Morocco more dearly than how um, Morocco tends to like assert itself in the African continent. And this is because um, in the past, I don't know of present time, I think they've come up with various strict immigration policies along the African Europe um, area. And um, basically what Morocco was doing was um, many immigrants from Africa, especially from the Western side, tended to like um, move from their countries and try to access Europe through that 14 kilometer strip between Morocco and Spain. I think it was somewhere along the streets of Gibraltar. But eventually um, the EU started becoming very stringent with their, visa, with their immigration policies and they had to stage um, immigration security officials right at the border of, right at that, um, that intersection between the Mediterranean Sea on the Morocco side and on the Spanish side. So for that reason, Morocco has really aligned itself a lot with the EU, with the EU, sorry, and to the extent, to the expense at the expense of now um, aligning itself with Africa. So that was just on a light note, just to add on what um, Akoto said. And also what you talked about sub-Saharan Africa as a, as a, as a segregative term, um, I'm positive that you've heard about William Hegel. And Hegel divides Africa into three sections. William Hegel, he divides Africa into three sections. He talks about Africa proper, now what eventually became to be known as sub-Saharan Africa. And he talks about um, the Egypt Africa, now the Egypt that connect, that has the region in Africa that has the river Nile that connects to Asia. And then he talks about Europe, Africa. Now Europe, Africa is now Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and I think a little bit of Western Sahara. I'm not very sure about that, but it comprises those North African countries that you're talking about in this discussion. So if you are to trace the historical genesis of um, this segregation of the Northern Africa wanting to be part of Arabia, I mean, of, of the Arab region, then I think you would also trace it, it to Hegel's, um, Hegel's writings and Hegel's arguments. Because he says that basically people in sub-Saharan Africa, at, as of that time, that is, I think, um, in the mid 19th century, lived in a state of unconsciousness. And as compared to now these other ones that had a more formal, had formal institutions, they had systems of governments, although that is not something that I really want to delve into right now, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think I'm already skeptical. <laughs> I mean, I have definitely a few points of contention. I mean, if people want to talk That's about true. Arabization, like yeah, Arabization, and I'm also going to do a video on this, just like as a side note, uh, slide, slight refutory point, right, to some of Hegel's arguments. I think when it comes to, yeah, I totally agree, right? But he's implying, I mean, it's his, his argument operates based upon the assumption that there's no contact between Arabs 
and sub-Saharan Africans. And I hate to use that term, but I'm going to use it anyways, just because it's the only word I have right now, right? Um, but we know of, you know, obviously relations between the Arab world and you find it with, you know, Kanem Bornu, you know, which was South Central African Kingdom. And the same thing with the Malian Empire and the Songhai Empire, you know, people were doing Hajj. And, you know, Ajami script is literally Arabic writings that were used to, you know, um, convey African languages and it still exists till this day. So that's also my question now, right? When you have situations like that, where there's that sort of hybrid sort of relationship, who are you uniting with? And this is my question to those North Africans that are like, oh, we're not Africans, we're Arabs, or we're not Africans, we're Europeans, right? So what on what basis do you decide that you're similar enough to interact with another group of people? And I've already mentioned the Swahili states, but I think now, obviously, I mean, unless Akoto wants to add something, do you want to add something, Akoto? Uh, I'd say quite simply, it sounds like, what can I call it? One foot in, one foot out. You want to call yourself European when it suits you, Arab when it suits you, African when it suits you. And to cut a long story short, I'd simply say, pick a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I actually, I totally agree with you because I totally get you like literally on the on the borders, etc. But I mean, I think I would expect these arguments to be coming from islands like Mauritius, right? That one, at least I can understand half half, like where that's coming from. Because like, it's like, you know, there's Mauritius, Seychelles. These are arguments I expect to come from them because they're literally not connected by any landmass, right? But even them, to an, to an extent, they still have, you know, um, very good trade relations with a lot of African, like, you know, countries on the mainland, right? So <clears throat> I think now we've talked a bit about, you know, uh, you know, here on the African continent. Um, I think with this whole year of return talk, I want us to sort of shift our perspectives a bit, um, not to the continent, but obviously where this Pan-African uh, sort of movement came from, uh, with obviously ideas from Marcus Garvey, you know, about people coming back to the continent. Would you guys consider, first of all, diaspora and uh, diasporans to be African and like essentially descendants of slavery, uh, who I'm referring to. And also, would you um, encourage them as part of this Pan-Africanist sort of movement to return to the continent and also contribute? Or what, what exactly would you recommend when we're dealing with diasporans in this sort of sense? Okay, to be... Mm -hmm. uh... Africans, okay, black people don't live in Africa, Africans might say yes and no. Um, okay, I'd say yes, because, okay, sure, their ancestral roots are in Africa. But I'd also say no, because these peoples over hundreds of years have also formed their own unique identities and cultures throughout the Caribbean and the rest of the Americas. So it is both yes and no. Uh, yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah, we can, we can work with that. Uh, what about you, Mikhail? Um, I would also on a lighter note, share on the sentiments made by Akoto. Um, of course, also, again, going by the, 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 the writings of Dr. Ali Mazrion, who an African is, I would define the Africans who went the diaspora. I would also define them as Africans for the, on the basis of 
having emanated from Africa. And also if you trace their genealogies, you'd find that they have traces in Africa. Um, I've been trying to watch videos on YouTube on Africans who've tried to um, take these ancestral DNA tests and many of them count to um, them having emanated from most regions in West Africa, mostly Angola, um, Mali, Nigeria, Ghana. So I would consider them Africans if we talk about the blood. And um, just as Akoto said, it could also be quite a no in the sense that they have not shared in the African experience, the continental African experience. But again, I'll look at it from another perspective. Um, why, do, where, why are the Blacks in America, the ones who went there as slaves, why are they known as African-Americans? They should have just been known as Americans. Why are most of them starting to be um, very vibrant in terms of Black nationalism, Black Lives Matter, if they were not Africans in the first place? And when we talk about the diaspora coming back to Africa, well, that's quite a contentious issue because some of them might not even know where they come from, unless when you talk about um, when you talk about them um, wanting to um, come to settle in any African country, like they would say, um, we want to go and settle in Kenya. But if they really don't know where they came from, then them coming to Africa might not make any sense at all. But I've seen many, they've been efforts, they've been deliberate efforts for many of them to try and trace where they came from. In fact, there are some generations that have tried to hold on to the names that they've had, the family names that they've had from like four generations, from like, this the, should be the 10th generation onwards. So many of them have tried to use these names to, the, to trace the countries they came from and to try and trace their family members. So it also depends on context, whether they want to come or not. But also, um, I am of the feeling that many of them might not want to come back and not because the state of affairs is very bad, but also of the perception that they've had about Africa. And this stems from the institutions that are there and the perceptions that, that has been shaped by the West concerning the state of Africa. Many of them might even think that we still live in the state that we were in a hundred years ago. So I think it depends on context. It depends with what they want. Yeah, that uh, I, I totally see where you're coming from, especially on black identity. I believe Akota wanted to add something. Uh, I'd like to play devil's advocate and also be brutally honest. Cause okay. Wait, I, I just I just let me know. Akota's always playing devil's advocate, and I absolutely <laughs> love it. I love it. Keep it keep it up, bro. Okay, for example, okay, when we say these people in the quote-unquote diaspora are Africans. Why are we struggling to reach, to take our tentacles across the Atlantic to claim hundreds of millions of people as our own? Why not just say, okay, those of us who live here are Africans, we will deal with our problems and work together and leave those other people alone. If they so feel compelled that they are African, they then to reconnect with their roots as they so say, and they decide to trace and come back to Africa. Well and good. We shall open. We shall welcome them with open arms. Whether they decide to go live in Ghana or Cameroon or wherever, well and good. We welcome them with open arms, on the condition that they speak our languages, they accept our cultures and traditions, 
and they do not bring their stereotypes and their preconceived notions to our countries. That's just the brutal fact. And then also at the same time, when we say we want them to come here, if you have to be practical, if someone has lived in the United States, in Brazil, in Argentina, in Colombia, Costa Rica, all their lives, honestly, I think very few African countries can match those countries in terms of quality of life, living standards or democratic norms that may be there. I'd say maybe the only countries that can are South Africa, Botswana, Mauritius, Seychelles. It's a pretty short list. So yeah, let's have to look at that practicality. Um, uh this is what I'll say, and also in many ways a brutal fact. Pan-Africanism in many ways uses identity as a vehicle for essentially labor, right? We are, we are almost like soldiers in the eyes of Pan-Africanism. When you declare loyalty to Pan-Africanism, it's not necessarily absolute loyalty because you could have loyalty to whatever ethnic group, you could have loyalty to religion, etc., right? When you decide that you are a Pan-African, right, and you are committing to the betterment of all African peoples, your identity therefore acts as a vehicle for the Pan-Africanist um, notion or like the Pan-Africanist ideology to be moved forward, right? So for me, I think the reason why we're stretching our tentacles in quotes all the way over there across the Atlantic to reach for that is also, first of all, this, this shared value that we can create uh, for me, I don't really care where you're, you're from necessarily. Like if you have interests and you want to reclaim your roots in a different way, right? I would say that it would be interesting to just see people coming back, especially with this whole year of return. We have a lot to benefit from it as African peoples in general, right? And I feel like it's also coming from one of these places of distress. One of the biggest things that I hear is that a lot of people want to move to countries where blackness is not the, the sole defining factor of your identity where there's more nuance in society. So for me, I'd say Pan-Africanism to many degrees actually transcends, it's not necessarily based on identity, but it's also about like, you know, anyone couldn't be a Pan-African, right? But being an African helps you, for example, uh, being, being, being an African also, I'd say, first of all, you have greater claim to the land. At the same time, you're also sort of be using your identity. You've sacrificed, uh, you know, portions of your time, portion of your labor, portion of your life to push through the betterment of African people. That would probably be my response to that. And I totally agree. I mean, when it comes to the idea of uh, one thing that is it's almost like a, it's one of those things we don't really talk about, but when people return to the continent, we are under the impression that they will assimilate, which is something that I find interesting. Uh, I think we can probably discuss that a bit in, in a bit more nuance when we're discussing about what are the ramifications if they don't assimilate? What if, and will new cultures be created? Um, let me know your thoughts, Mikhail, on, on Akoto's um, you know, little speech. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, that's quite also a very debatable issue because um, unless it's happened, I think a more practical perspective would be to look at the Africans who've come to Africa from the diaspora, the diaspora who've decided to come back to Africa for good and to try to reconnect with their roots. I think that question would be answered from the experiences that these people have had so far. And being assimilated um, 
always depends on the it will always depends on it will always depend on the intention of the diaspora if they are willing to be assimilated or if they still want to stick with the with the beliefs and the cultures that they've had so i think it also depends with with the with the with the with the historical roots and the and the you know the 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 whatever the the culture and everything that they've chosen to stick to yeah no i get your point bro i think also we should know that it's not it's not like them totally mutually exclusive it's not like we're telling someone from um australia to come through and then just you know like we're not telling like a white australian for example who's lived there their entire life to come to africa where they have different culture etc there's a lot of different overlaps between obviously the diaspora and um you know some african cultures whether that be in music whether that be in culture and a lot of these times you find that's the reason why we have so many african caribbean societies in all these different places right but yeah i think one thing that i also wanted to ask right and this is a very i mean i talked about it on a coach's podcast guys my listeners a coach is going to be releasing a podcast on the same topic in a different like from a different angle like in a, in a month's time or so right so go ahead and uh, look for his uh, podcast i believe it's the ufanisi podcast right um you tell us the details yeah ufanisi cast yes there we go ufanisi ufanisi cast podcast go ahead and view that my my question now would be in relation to the diaspora and I, i'm asking for your economic expertise do you think <clears throat> when diasporans come obviously these they usually coming from areas where the currency is stronger right would they be able to create and i talked with a quota about this a possible new bourgeoisie sort of class of people who are coming with let's say <clears throat> greater you know uh let's say prospects of education in terms of maybe they they're well qualified in different universities etc they coming back how's that going to affect the labor market for africans one even when it comes to businesses right how's that going to affect other africans will it cause some sort of xenophobia will there be some sort of divisions according to you seem eager to answer so go ahead and answer um i think even though they may be black like us and even though they may have money i think they end up being discriminated against uh wow and i realize people do not necessarily want to have these honest conversations but anyway so i think they'll be discriminated against because it takes time for them to become us people will hear your accent people will observe the ways in which you act and they form a perception about you and then you'll be othered it's like for example here in nairobi in kenya go to the village market on a weekend the village market is full of white people like full of white people and sometimes you ask yourself when i walk the streets of nairobi barely do i see a white person so how come they are full in village market and then our national census tells us apparently there are about 30000 kenyans who are white and do you see these people interact in public life no the thousands tens of thousands of white kenyans in this country have simply secluded themselves in their own neighborhoods 
away from the rest of mainstream Kenyan society. So I think in the end, depending on various factors, they might one, integrate, or two, simply form their own like enclaves where they live. And I'm seeing here, Adnan, you've told me that village market is full of white people because of the UN. Yes, that may be true, but for as long as you live in a country long-term, perhaps you'd meet people, but that's a discussion for another day. And then also, okay, also you have to see this thing of integration. To be honest, I think it's a Western ideology to a degree because the West has a history of liberalism that we can be a diverse society, but liberalism is not something inherent within African culture. Sure, you may be different from us. That does not mean we hate you, but you can stay over there. We will stay over here and we respect each other and we interact when necessary. We do not necessarily have a culture of liberalism. And that's something we also need to consider. I think I might have to disagree with you on that one. <laughs> I think, okay, yeah, in some, and I'll cite a few pieces of evidence from history. I like to mention the Swahili states because that was literally the epitome of, you know, cultural mixing. And I've mentioned this several times about how Africans are so quick to adopt or, you know, create different cultures. Like if you look at into Kanem Boronu, right? Uh, one of the reasons why, obviously, when they when they were sort of displaced from the eastern banks of Lake Chad, that moved to the western banks of Lake Chad, they sort of met this new ethnic group and they created a new ethnic group by sort of, I don't want to say, yeah, no, they basically, yeah, they were procreating with uh, this other, you know, ethnic group and they formed a whole new ethnic group. The same thing happened with, with Swahilis where uh, a lot of different, you know, scholars actually talk about the the Africanization of Arabs. Uh, I need to read more about Madagascar, but Madagascar is a melting pot of all different kinds of cultures, etc. And if you look, I mean, one state in which I think your your theory, theory was quite true was I think mainly in West Africa, right? You'd see in the Malian Empire when they first came, when they were unified by Sunjata Keita, I think there was 12 different cities or like, you know, tribes. And each of them had their sort of own federal sort of entity and they would make tributes to, to the Mansas in the Malian Empire. So I think it's obviously a bit of both. I think Africans can, um, can, can sort of work with integration. I think that we've gotten used to that idea of cultural mixing, but I think also that's one of the, one, that's only one of, that's just one of the ways that we deal with, you know, mixing. Unfortunately, other ways it resulted in wars, etc. But I, I, yeah, I find it very interesting that a lot of white people in Nairobi haven't really integrated so I think it's like you have a choice between integration and segregation. I think people always see, you know, white people in Kenya, for example, or even in other countries, like as just, you know, the, the foreigners that have come to settle, right? Even if you have a Kenyan passport, that's the sort of way. And I think, I mean, over time, I mean, let's see, uh, you know, in a hundred years, let's see what happens. You know, I'm, I'm really curious to see if that'll, that segregation will still exist or if it'll come, you know, it'll become integration. Go ahead. Come to that point. Um... I think also, okay, I'll use two examples, though these people keep in mind that one, celebrities. So the first person I'll use is the example of Jason Danford. 
Jason Dunford is white. He has Kenyan citizenship and competed as a Kenyan in the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics. And after he starts swimming professionally, he became a musician and he actually sings in Kiswahili. The second example I'll use is Gilad. He's a former Israeli ambassador to Kenya. He learned Kiswahili. He became a musician and sings in Kiswahili and has applied for Kenyan citizenship. Identity is complex. And if you're being honest, most people in Kenya do not view white Kenyans as Kenyans or African, even if they may be. Whereas I view Gilad as Kenyan, even though he's originally Israeli. And I view Danford as Kenyan because they have made a deliberate choice to integrate within society. Yeah, so I'm gonna hand over to Mikhail in a second. I wanna, I mean, this is my concept that I always try to push forward. That's an excellent point about soft and hard identity, right? I think you can be a white African, right? It's, it's very possible, right? A lot of people are like, oh no, you can't be white African. I would technically, I would disagree with that, right? Uh, I think that there definitely, there's this concept of soft and hard identity. I think a lot of people, especially, I think there was this other British guy that was speaking Kikuyu on news and people were shocked, etc. So I mean, like when you're in situations like that, people are more likely to cozy up to you and sort of accept you as integrated as part of the society because you've accepted the soft identity element, but still because of your hard identity, i.e. what people can see from you, right? Or the, the very overt parts of your personality, you may not have a greater claim to an identity compared to someone else who might, for example, have a certain skin color or certain look of an ethnic group, plus the soft identity and soft identity in my opinion refers to culture, it refers to language, it might refer to religion, etc. So I, I totally agree with you, Koto. And now let's hear from Mikhail. What's your opinion about this? So mine will be very brief, and I would say two things. Deliberation and time. Um, while it's true, um, integration is a more liberalized concept, and this has come from the West. And um, it appears that at this particular time, there might be no choice but for them to choose to integrate in the case where they would come. But now my question again in, is, is in this context. In which context are we talking about them coming from the diaspora and settling in Africa? Is it one by one or is it a mass, as a mass of people? And if it's as a mass of people, um, what arrangements will be made in place for them to come back? Are there going to be calls or are they going to be coming one by one or various groups or from various countries because I'm a little bit confused in terms of in terms of that. But now in terms of deliberation, just like Akoto has said, I think it would be very necessary for them. Um, this thing needs to come from them. They need to cultivate that intentionality that um, they could speak Swahili, they could um, sing songs in Swahili. Um, okay, not in Swahili only, but in, in whichever state that they choose to settle. They will be intentional about wanting to integrate and being assimilated into that. African society. It all depends on, on intentionality. Oh, and also, Adnan, if you notice, I don't think you may even have noticed, essentially what you have done, you have ended up in an immigration debate, the same debates they have in Europe and America, because that is essentially what this is. It's a debate about immigration. And yeah, it's not that we don't want people to come here, but we want you to come here on our terms, yeah. 
and yes that, it's it's just simply that and yeah I'll just keep it to that <laughs> I, I mean i find it very interesting i mean that's also yeah no we really need to have these <clears throat> difficult discussions because that's literally what we mean and i think this is the fuel of what's causing a lot of these diasporan wars on twitter right it's like literally people don't realize these are the stuff that we're talking about <clears throat> These are the underlying consumption. I mean, uh, the conceptions that we're talking about. And to be honest, you, I think that when when in doubt, we should look what happened in history and what worked, right? At times, you know, and Mikhail brought up a good question. I think this is something that's more likely to happen over time. You know, small batches of people when there's a year of return, when maybe there's incentive. Let's say you get a good business package. Let's say you get a house, whatever, right? If they start doing these diaspora schemes, right, of encouraging people to be able to come back. Let's say you have less in tax for the first ten years of your return to the African continent. I mean, these are interesting schemes that I think could be put in place. I think, I mean, over if it's in mass, it might cause like issues depending on what what's actually going on. There might be a lot of xenophobia. But I think when it's like, you know, over time, and I don't think it's going to be like mass, but it's like batches of people over time, that obviously lessens the effect of <clears throat> that whole thing. But I think, okay, in general, we've, we've kind of dwelt on this topic a lot. And I think, Akocho, this, this can be a whole different podcast about, you know, these immigration sort of debates we're having, <laughs> because that's literally what they are. Uh, but obviously, I'm not against anyone coming back to the continent. Um, but yeah, let's now focus a bit more on like the actual the forms of Pan-Africanism, right? Um, so I want to just briefly ask you guys, I know it's a huge one, or we can sort of split it up into some sort of, um, you know, small bits, right? <clears throat> the different conceptions of Pan-Africanism. Some people that I've talked to envision an Africa as a country, right? Obviously, I disagree with that. Right, there's uh, people who envision it as having almost no borders. There's some people who want the borders to be more porous, or they want them to be more open. There's some people who um, think of it in a strictly economic sense. There's some people who think of it in a uh, you know regional sense, but then something that comes together. What is your conception of Pan Africanism in a very short sort of description, and then we can sort of start breaking it down. We can start with that photo. Uh, yeah. Uh, if I'm getting you correctly, okay. What would modern Pan Africanism look like? That's essentially what you're saying. Yeah, or what would you want it to look like, basically? Okay. I'd want it to look like Wakanda, but because we don't live in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you have to get <laughs> practical, I would want. As ironic as this sounds, Pan-Africanism to look like the European Union, because from the outside, we may say Europe is somewhat homogenous, but when you say that because we are from the outside looking in, whereas actually Europe is diverse, but Europe has found that despite this diversity, various means to form at least to me as an outsider, a somewhat coherent identity. So to me, that is what Pan-Africanism would look like. Mm. Uh, and what about you, um, Mikhail? Well, um, as a specialist in international relations, um, as times go by, um, 
I'm beginning to be a little bit skeptical with the European Union model of uh, unification. And um, I will talk about that eventually. So um, Pan-Africanism to me would be um, the ideal sense, the one that people think about would be just what you want you said, uh, more fluid units that's you now in terms of states where states um, are borderless, that we consider our borders, or on the other hand, we'd still maintain our borders, uh, but power will be decentralized. Um, just like how it has been in the US, how it's worked as a federal state. So that's also one conception. Another one would be on the economic aspect. And you realize that most regional organizations in Africa have been formed uh, on the basis of Pan-African economic unity. Um, if you look at the basis for the formation of the East African community, if you look at the basis for the formation of South African Development Corporation, if you look at the, for the basis of the formation of the common market for Eastern Southern Africa, ECOWAS, all of these ones have been formed for the attainment of the, the Pan-African economic unity. So the notion of Pan-Africanism is very ideal and it's very necessary, but I find it nuanced as well because there are so many aspects to look at it but when you dive deeply and apologies to the listeners we had a few technical issues that the audio just basically cut out so we'll just continue the podcast now and we're going to hear Mikhail speaking from his point of view again so i was talking about um the basis for the formation of the east african community economic community of west african states um south africa development corporation um, common market for East and Central Africa. All of these organizations have been formed for the basis of achieving uh, Pan-African economic unity. And if you use something called the classical integration process, it calls for an eventual now federation, economic federation of or political federation of all of these, um, starting with a free market, a free trade area, which comprises um, free movements of goods and services and people. Um, from there, you move on out to a customs union, then a common market, then from a common market now is the integration of the economy, like countries deciding to use one common currency. And you know, when you're talking about one common currency or one economic union, basically you're being subjected to the same fiscal and monetary policies. Essentially, that's what it's meant by, that's what it is meant, that's what it means. But now um, we've just talked about using history as a basis of being able to make judgments for what the future holds. Um, the ECOWAS has been very vibrant. It's shown that it can be able, all these steps can be can be attained right from the, the classical integration process, right from the free markets, free, free movement of goods and services, right to economic and monetary union. But now the contention is this. Akoto, you wanted to say something? Mm-mm. Oh, sorry. Um, now the problem is this. Um, there are two ways to look at the problem. One is that most countries are still, I think around 13 to 14 countries in West Africa are still under the CFA franc and the CFA franc is tied to the French central bank. So basically the fiscal policies in West African countries are largely tied to the French, to French influence. The second is that they had made deliberations for the attainment for the consolidation of one currency in north of these countries. And this currency was known as the eco-currency. Now, the Anglophone countries mainly were the ones who came up with this, but also um, it was a common agreement between all states, among all states in the ECOWAS block. And the issue that uh, came up after that was that uh, the Anglophone countries in West Africa were a little bit skeptical eventually in trying to like adopt this currency because 
Nigeria, for example, felt that the Naira would be undermined in this case, and that they would give, it was a way of like giving up their sovereignty on the basis of economy. So if we talk about the achievement of Pan-Africanism in the economic concept, in the economic context, using such an example or such a context, then it becomes very difficult. And that's why I'm saying, well, Pan-Africanism, neo-Pan-Africanism is very ideal, it's a little bit nuanced because of such matters. If you move a little bit now from um, the ECOWAS to um, the East African community, um, in 1970, it was formed in 1967 between among presidents um, Kenyatta of Kenya, Nyerere of Tanzania, and Milton Obote of, of Uganda. And it was formed for the basis of on the basis of um, economic cooperation between Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. But now there were so many problems that happened in between 1967 and 1977. Um, we would talk about uh, the rise of Idi Amin and his expansionism and his expansionist ideologies. I mean, wanted to invade into Kenya, instead invading into Tanzania, and that led that led to a war of two years. Um, the ideological differences between President Kenyatta and President Nyerere, because Nyerere was more of socialist, although he was saying that he was quote unquote uh, an unaligned person, but he was was generally socialist. And um, because of such reasons, the first East African community collapsed. That was in 1977. And there were very hostile relations between Kenya and Tanzania and Kenya and Uganda, but especially Kenya and Tanzania. That led now to the closing of borders between Kenya and Tanzania in 1983. Now, um, well, President Moi, when President Moi ascended into power, um, the relations between Kenya and Tanzania somehow thawed. With the state visit of by the state through the state visit Nyerere made in Kenya in 19, to Kenya in 1985, so the the relations tended to have um, tended to have to have to have to have been a little bit more stable as compared to how it was before. Now, um, eventually, the new East African Community has been formed, and it was formed in 2001 after an agreement between President Moi um, among Presidents Moi. Uh, Museveni of Uganda and Benjamin Mkapa of Tanzania, the late Benjamin Mkapa. And um, now this one was formed on the basis of Pan-Africanism, Neo-Pan-Africanism. And the end game of this was to make, is to, was to come up with something called the Confederation of East Africa. And this Confederation of East Africa would be um, the East African region, as of that time it was Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, to be able to form one single state, to be one single country. And uh, this has proven has proved to be difficult over time because we've started to see so many dynamics. Um, president Museveni says that he wants to be the president of the first federation of East Africa. I don't know how how no, that's no. going to work. <laughs> I don't know how that is going to work out, but uh, we've started to see that there's that dynamic. Um, there have been hostile relations between now from there on. After a few years, there's something that we call principle of subsidiarity that's in regional politics. Subsidiarity and openness. So openness basically means that the economic block, the economic cooperation, or just basically the regional block does not dispute or does not um, discriminate against the members that want to join it. I'm even told that the DRC wants to be a member of the East African community. Now, from there on, we've seen an expansion because now Uganda. I mean, Rwanda, Burundi, and South Sudan are members of the EAC. I think Rwanda became a member in 2007. And um, what has happened was that there has been a renewed sense of recalibration of 
the differences between the leaders of these specific countries. Um, in 2013, President uh, Jakaya Kikwete of Tanzania, the former president of Tanzania, Jakaya Kikwete, made a proposition to President Kagame. And this was on the basis of making um, amends with the DRC in the context of the FDLR soldiers, FDLR rebels who were hiding in the DRC, the ones who were involved in the 1994 genocide. So Jakaya Kikwete made a proposition to President Kabila, the then President Kabila of Congo, Kinshasa, to meet and for them to have a, a talk and negotiate on what could happen because the two countries have been having some tense relations for the last, I think, almost more than for around 22 years. And President uh, Kagame did not take these sentiments very lightly. And this, this led to a, a sort of hostile relations between uh, Kikwete and Kagame. And now in general, um, Uganda and, and Rwanda, I mean, Tanzania and Rwanda. There've also been renewed tensions between Rwanda and Uganda on this context. Um, and you'll realize that even in this regional block, the East African, I mean, since the Eastern African region, Tanzania tends to look southwards while Kenya tends to look northwards. And that's why Tanzania tends to be a member of both the EAC and the SADC, where we allow members of EAC and maybe IGAD. So there've been those contentions. Um, other things are, there's been an, I'm sorry to say this, but, um, it is said that there needs to be something called citizen awareness. Citizen awareness in the context of integration. Many citizens are not aware that the integration process is to take place. And um, it is said that on a grassroots level, especially in Tanzania, um, there's been a sort of, um, on the social, culture, social cultural perspective, there's been a sort of contention because um, the Tanzanian people have a sort of inferiority complex because of the dominance of the Swahili language, they might not be able to integrate into the economic block, into the eventual political block very well. So they don't know how their relations would be with, um, with, with, with the rest of the countries within the particular region. And you can now see also um, many presidents are tending to look more inwards, like President Magufuli of Tanzania is more of a domestic person. So it's more of domestic policy than, than um, trying to for relations between him and among and other countries. So yeah, such ideas, such issues again, I think would make it very difficult to for this thing that we call Pan-Africanism eventually. I think um, it's very good. It's a very good idea ideally, but the current state of affairs, like calling a spade a spade, I don't think it's a very, I don't think it's something that will happen anytime soon, especially considering the current and historical dynamics of the same. Yeah, no, I totally, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think, hey, I mean, I'm just thinking about, uh, obviously, first of all, thank you so much. That's a very comprehensive and very detailed sort of answer that you've given. And that gives us a lot of context as to what the possible issues could be. Uh, I think me and Akoto talked about this earlier in the podcast and just before the podcast, um, this sort of idea of just focusing on things like shared unity and focusing on things like um, shared history, right? I think when you start to focus on those things, you might actually be able to find that a lot of different bridges can be built. And I know that there are still going to be a lot of existing issues, right? So I think for me, the main thing is, I mean, yeah, it's obviously going to be difficult. I think for me, if we're looking at a time frame, though, if we really want to be honest, Pan-Africanism most likely could be achieved within the next century or the next two centuries, right? Because we're obviously, keep in mind, guys, we're legit just, you know, new states. Right. There's a lot. There's a lot that we need to discuss. There's a lot of political work that needs to be done. 
And as we said, like, you know, you get issues like people like Museveni wanting to be the president of this state, right? And also like uh, at the state, the current state of corruption, like what does this mean for state capture? Like people are just gonna be like, okay, now there's a greater pool of money that we can all loot from. It's like, uh, what's, gonna, what's gonna be the issue? You know, these are all questions that we have. And I think they're definitely complications. Uh, I'd also like to look at it from a bit of a legal perspective, because I mean, even as a law student, uh, when I was studying public law, there are major issues that the US, I mean, the UK is facing right now in relation to applying EU law. And they're going to be pulling out of EU law and you know, all common law systems, right? Now imagine where you have, for example, all these kinds of different legal systems and you're operating on certain base laws. Now, Europe is quite small in comparison to Africa, right? Literally the DRC can fit almost like in, in half of like, you know, actually it can basically fill Western Europe, right? And a bit of uh, England, right? So I'm thinking obviously from a legal perspective, this is what I would say. I do not expect legal integration of African countries. Right. I think that's going to cause too many complications and it might actually mean that you're sacrificing more sovereignty than you're actually gaining benefit from it. Right. Because we are too many different cultures. I think that there should be that that's something that should be sort of left alone unless there are certain bylaws in, in regards to, for example, economic transactions. Um, as for the things, for example, free trade agreement, I think that's just generally what I'm talking about, because intra-African trade at the moment is down to two percent. Um, in terms of the average of you know imports and exports, and that's been from 2015 to 2017. Uh, that's the UN did a study on that, which is obviously not enough. In areas like Europe, it's like I think 68%. In Asia, I believe it's 67% or 65%. In the Americas, it's in the 60s percent as well. So I think for me, it just comes down to first of all, I want us to be encouraging trade. I don't necessarily mean like you know borders should disappear, but I think that that's one aspect that I'm looking at it from. So I've already considered legal, you know, unity. Right. When it comes down to, for example, political unity, I mean, these are all things that we can talk about. I think just the idea that people should have a table, like, you know, that where they can discuss all of these issues and maybe you can have regional breakouts, right, where you discuss more specific things every single year you come together to discuss these issues. So I don't think necessarily a European Union style thing would work um, for the African continent, also because we have unique issues, right? But I definitely think in relation to something like uh, for example, military and all this different stuff, I'd like to see more alliances. And a lot of people might be like, oh, Adnan, you're supporting militarism. This is just going to create an arms race. No, guys, I mean, at, the, at this state, Africa is bleeding and we know who is causing the bleeding, right? So, I mean, we need to be very honest. There's a reason why countries like Congo would be defenseless, right? And obviously there's a reason why certain countries are more prone to, you know, proxy wars, etc., all this different stuff. And like, even for example, in, in terms of tackling things like terrorism, I think that obviously, you know, you can see relations between Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. It's a continental issue. It's not just one place. Even in Mozambique, I'm hearing that there's different, you know, um, radical Islamic terrorist groups, right? Which are very, very fringe groups, right? So I'm thinking about all of these different things in relation to like the military as well. I would like to see more military alliances between African countries. And if I'm being honest, right? If I'm being a thousand percent honest, if for example, African states came together, right? And there were some nuclear powers in Africa, right? That would like possibly actually, you know, take the target off of Africa's back, or at least we're a force to be reckoned with. And when I tell people, I'm not saying that we should use nuclear weapons. I don't really, I mean, I, re I really don't want to do that. That's a terrible thing. But you need to understand the game that is being played on the international sphere, right? The case of nuclear weapons, right, is that it's hypocrisy. You cannot tell us, oh, you cannot get nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, you're stockpiling them in your backyard. And we know which countries I'm talking about, right? It is hypocrisy, 
right? You either disarm to our level or we arm up to your level, right? Because that is creating a power dynamic, which is not only toxic, but as we've seen is being used as an excuse, right? To be able to enforce certain aims on our continent, right? Which are obviously not in the interest of the people. And that's why we're seeing so many of these issues. Akoto, you wanted to interject? Mm. Okay, now that you've mentioned it, I think one, I think that maybe the integration is a lie. Yes, I'll play devil's advocate. Integration is a lie. And the only unity worth having is economic and military unity, like you stated. But okay, I think when you accept that we are different and that perhaps it may be difficult to live together and we may not even want to live together, then there's this concept, there's this saying, good fences make good neighbors. So for example, instead of, okay, Kenya and Tanzania always have their own political issues. Instead of pretending Kenya and Tanzania want to work together, we want to love each other, we simply accept we are different. We will work on economic and military terms and stop the charade. Perhaps you can call it a charade of we are united together as one. Yeah, perhaps that is a better option. Um, I see what you're saying, right? <laughs> but I think also instead of, let me just, yeah, sorry, Mikhail, I've seen you raise your hand as well, definitely. Um, what I'll say about this, right? In relation to, um, in relation to what's it called? To Tanzania, all this different stuff. Um, so yeah, let me get this straight for those listeners, right? We've already classified. I don't think legal unity is an issue, which would be maybe on a regional level, that's a different topic, right? Where you have, for example, certain laws as a region that you agree on, right? Maybe that could be something that you benefit from because regional, I mean, Africa is a huge continent. I don't want to compare it to Europe, right? Now, when it comes to economics, I totally agree, but we definitely shouldn't give up on the prospect of, you know, working with each other and normalizing good political relations. We need to look at ways of how do we not just unify, right, in terms of like, you know, um, we just sort of have different whatevers, you know, but how do we create good political practices, for example, with this whole, uh, this whole case of the Egypt and Ethiopia dam, right, how do we, that's where I think Pan-Africanism can also act. I'll mention two last points, right, Pan-Africanism can actually mention, act, for example, as a deterrent, or like it can be punishing certain like you know bad behaviors, right? Uh, like for example, this whole end SARS thing. You, the government killed fifty-eight people, innocent citizens, and I'm not yet where African leaders. Where are you, right? Where are you? How can how can you know states or you know, more politicians from the UK be speaking about this? Yet African leaders are silent, right? This is what I'm talking about. <clears throat> you can be able to leverage, for example certain pressures on certain countries that are committing human rights abuses, right? And that can be able to be used in a good way, but I also know it can be used for bad, right? And also as a mediating uh, sort of position between countries like between Egypt and Ethiopia, how can we come together to resolve crises? How can we come together? Maybe there can even be a border reconciliation um, committee, right? Where over the next 50 years, we start working on fixing the issues, not necessarily redrawing borders, but fixing the issues caused by colonial borders, right? I mean, I want to know what, what you think, Mikhail, because obviously you're the one with the most knowledge here. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about the perspective that both of you have, talked, uh, have mentioned. That's on economic, cooperation on economics. And um, 
we usually say that economics first, then politics later. Because for the politics to happen, there has to be economics. Even if you talk about, if even if you use the notions brought up by scholars like Antonio Gramsci, who say that, um, who is a neo-Marxist, and he says that um, economics is the basis of the, the ruling class to dominate over the rest of the people. So I think economics first, then politics later. But now, there's something I wanted to mention on that note. Um, while economic unity is very essential, there's a reason why countries come together to cooperate, to, 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 to cooperate economically. The end game is for them to have a single currency. That's it for most of all, for most of these countries that come together, especially at regional level. Many of them come together so that eventually they establish a common currency. But there's one thing that people forget. Um, there's something that there's a theory called the realism school of thought that's in international relations. And realism, the basic argument of realism is that states are the main actors in international relations and that states are solely motivated by something called national interest. If states don't enter into the, if a state enters into the a deliberation with another country, it's not purely because of at the, uh, that they want to, they want to um, cooperate and live harmoniously. There's nothing like that. What they just want to do is to act out of their self-interest, their national interests. And um, many countries right now wouldn't want to give out their sovereignty that they would want to establish a common currency as an economic block. That's hardly going to happen. I don't even think it will happen in the next 50 years, considering what I'm seeing, that is what, I'm, what is going on. So I think in that particular context, well, it's a very ideal, where well, it's very ideal for economic cooperation and unity to happen, it's also going to be very difficult because states are motivated by their national interests. And their national interests also is to safeguard their sovereignty. And to safeguard their sovereignty, then they cannot be willing to give up their currency because basically they're being accepted to be dominated or giving out a part of themselves. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, right? One, one reply that I'll say, I am a bit sympathetic to that realist school of thought. And I think that's why for Pan-Africanism, the main driver of Pan-Africanism is a concept called reciprocal altruism. I know it's a Darwinist concept, but if we're taking it as if, you know, it's, it's based on a Hobbesian view, essentially, Thomas Hobbes talks about the war against all of, of all against all, you know, you know, people sort of fighting for resources, et cetera, as human beings, right? <clears throat> so now we've taken that to the state level. And what we're saying is that the states are basically these individuals with selfish interests, right? So we need to base it on reciprocal altruism. One country is doing this. We need to essentially account for the costs of, for example, adopting a main currency. But that's not necessarily what I'm arguing for as well. Sometimes better trade is the answer, right? Not necessarily a currency. And what I'm thinking is that if we actually do resort to regional currency within the next 200 years, it could be possibly that you have, let's say, you have, let's say, a, a whole entire African continent that's you know, under a Pan-African agreement, whatever, this goods exchange, but maybe you have four or five currencies in the continent. That could be something, right? Where you find that, you know, there's four or five different currencies, but obviously I'm not too strong in that economic sector. So I can't really make full arguments about that. But I definitely think my, my main focus right now, right, for our generation, because I don't even think we'll live to see a, a united African currency, right? Um, I'm thinking more about the trade aspects, right? And obviously infrastructure. I was about to, yes, I totally forgot infrastructure, guys. We need to come to find ways to build infrastructure between countries because the colonizers, when they were here, they only built from the capital cities to the ports, end of story, right? So our infrastructure is lacking right now. And that's why, for example, certain countries actually have to import certain um, 
you know, resources when your neighbor has that resource because it's more expensive to get it from your neighbor than let's say Vietnam, right? So Akoto, let's hear from you and then we'll discuss um, the concept of, you know, uh, you know, we talked about self-interest. We'll talk about whether it could be unfair for smaller countries in relation, relation to larger and more economically developed countries, right? But um, let's, yeah, let's hear from Akoto and then we'll get to that last point and then we'll close off. Mm. I'd like to throw a spot in the works and ask, or rather perhaps claim, the problem with the African Union is that every African at all countries can join simply because they're African. And that is the problem with the African Union. As much as it's a union of African countries, you don't just allow every Tom, Dick and Harry to join the union. Okay, since earlier I had advocated for a European-like model, but to a degree you've convinced me otherwise. If you look at the EU, they have something called the Copenhagen criteria. And unless a country meets certain criteria in terms of democratic norms, human rights, the rule of law, and free market capitalism, it cannot join the European Union, even if, it's, if it is a European country. So the problem I see then with the African Union is that they let everyone and anyone join. And if you're being honest, there's some that does not mean that the countries that are less developed or are struggling should be left to die off on their own because the EU helps countries that are trying to join it to improve. But now when you find yourselves with countries like, to be, okay, no offense, but Burkina Faso, then you put Burkina Faso and tell Burkina Faso to work with South Africa. You tell Burundi to work with Egypt. It's okay, part of it is not practical. I feel like also there is a lot of mediocrity. And if the NSAS thing in Nigeria showing us the African Union is quite useless. So there's a lot of just mediocrity. So I think there should have been certain high criteria each nation state has to achieve before they join instead of just letting anyone in everyone join more or less. Now, let me let me just throw Aspana into the works and be devil's advocate, advocate as well, right? So talking about every Tom, Njuguna, and Joroge joining this, you know, African Union, right? Um, I think when it comes to these, these application processes, et cetera, right? Uh, my question is that obviously, as you mentioned, there are certain countries which are more militarily, economically, and politically developed than other African countries. Could the creation of a unified Africa, and this is the last topic we'll talk about before we close off, could the concept of a united Africa result in a case where you have, for example, like the way we have the Security Council for the UN, where certain African countries, right, are coming together, like big African countries, let's say it's only Kenya, it's Nigeria, South Africa, and Egypt, for example, and then these countries end up becoming tools of oppression for smaller countries, that's my question, because, you know, if you have a clown in leadership, you know, it's more likely that you end up with a circus on the I continent. <laughs> I don't think they would oppress them, but they would dominate them, and even if you're being honest, uh-huh, the European Union is dominated by Germany. When Germany sneezes, everyone else gets the flu. So mm. 
a few countries dominating is an eventuality. Mm. If you're being honest and realistic, then I just think for as long as the smaller people get more, have more pros than cons, then yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you're right about the eventuality and Mikhail, I'm gonna to come to you in a second, don't worry. Um, I think it's one of those things where <clears throat> you're obviously gonna get, for example, it's gonna be dominated by countries like Kenya, Nigeria, Egypt, South Africa, um, oh. possibly even Morocco as well. I'd right. also like to note that in such hypothetical scenario, I'm the citizen of a country that would be doing the dominion. So yeah, take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah, no, same. I'm also the citizen. <laughs> We're all citizens of that specific country. I'm sp specifically talking about, for example, um, economic and all that different stuff. I'm not saying that Kenya is the most politically developed country, but for South Africa, we can, I think a lot of us can actually agree. It's one of those you know, it's in BRICS as well, right? So it's one of those countries that has been singled out as one of those major production sites in terms of businesses, et cetera. It, it packs a lot of weight, even for example, Egypt, right? Um, in relation to military developments, obviously you're gonna have to have a big say. So I think my question, I mean, the only, the one thing that I'm really scared of is like, yeah, at the end of the day, you you know, this whole realist conception of international relations, when you apply it to the idea of resources, like what if what if countries these countries in this African Union just decided you know what guys, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo has good resources, so now um, we're gonna invade it and then like you know this is sort of like an extreme situation, it's like an extreme situation right but you know <laughs> I could just laughing quite a bit there right but I mean that's an extreme but now let's say it's more subtle and it's like a proxy war where you find certain countries are funding you know rebel groups which is true. It happens. Proxy wars are quite common, by the way, right? You know, they might actually be funding proxy groups. Then when you come to the African Union, it's like, oh no, but you know, we didn't, we cannot confirm nor deny, right? You know, that's my question, right? Would, would we become, and seriously, Franz Fanon talked about this, right? On a state level, right? Um, when we're talking about the national bourgeoisie, because now, could this possibly now be creating, us creating a new hyper-class? And I'm also like, you know, bring this argument forward again of elite African countries that could possibly create new, you know, sort of um, routes towards things like oppression, et cetera, for smaller countries or countries with many resources, right? Could we end up, you know, creating a situation whereby now you have uh, a Kenyan exit or like, you know, uh, you know, a certain country exiting because um, of all these different things that are being caused by this African Union. So I think these are all things I, I just want to know about. Uh, I mean, I want to get your opinions on it, guys, before we close off. So yeah, Mikhail, go ahead. I have so many things to talk about. I don't know where to start from. Or how should I go about it? Was it what I intended to say initially or with regards to your question? Um, I think you can do a mixture of both also because of time. I don't okay, know very no problem. I, I, I'll be brief. I'll be brief, no problem. Um, I just want to also add on what Akoto said and I'll also throw a span in the, in the works and be the devil's advocate as well. Uh, I would want to talk about the mediocrity of the African Union. And um, this is very practical. Where, is the head, where are the headquarters of the AU? In Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa is in Ethiopia. Now, do you know how hard it is for a Nigerian to get into Ethiopia? And it's easier for a European to get into Ethiopia than a Nigerian. In fact, it's very easy for you 
to get a visa as a European into, actually you don't even need a visa. You just need $50 and your passport is stamped at the airport at Addis. And that's how you enter, that's how you enter um, Ethiopia. On the other hand, if you're a Nigerian, chances are very high that you're not going to get into Addis. Yet they say that Addis is the capital, is the administrative capital of, or the administrative headquarters of the African Union. I think there's a sort of mediocrity there and some pretense. I would say that's the double standards of the African Union. There's a lot of double standards there. And when you talk about Pan-Africanism, and this is why I'm very bitter when people start talking about Pan-Africanism because of such things. Because why would you deny a visa, why would you deny an African, a fellow African a visa to Nigeria where a person would come from Europe and enter a disababa just by paying $50? Uh, I think that really disturbs me. And on account of uh, financing wars and proxy wars, um, still using the realist conception, there's a thing called security dilemma. I'm sure you know about security dilemma. Basically, it's the arms race. So actions of one country to militarize only for the action of an, the actions of another country's country to militarize because it feels threatened. Now, in an African context, we say that African countries are currently facing an insecurity dilemma rather than security dilemma. And this is because of two reasons. The first reason is because um, African countries do not have the right, do not have the, the amount of financial muscle to be able to guarantee them an arms race. That's the first thing. Now, the second reason would be because of the first reason. Many African countries are occupied with internal issues at the expense of thinking of engaging in an arms race with another country. For you to be able to finance a proxy war, then that would also mean to some extent that you are quite sufficiently endowed economically. And um, when we were talking about the basis for the formation of the African Union and something like a security council or something of the sort, I would want to know on which basis, because um, the United Security Council was basically formed on the basis of Axis powers, I mean, the countries that contributed to the defeat of the Axis. So I also want to know which context are we talking about when we formed the Security Council, because we have this something called a regional competition for hegemonic status between the East, the West, the North and the South. Um, what do, what do, which parameters do we use to measure Kenya becoming a hegemon or South Africa or Nigeria or Egypt? Because they usually say economic, they usually say sometimes political, and that political is denoted as military influence. So I would also want to know that, but that's my take on that. Yo, those are excellent questions you asked. <clears throat> and obviously this, I mean, the, the points about obviously insecurities, um, I think when it comes to you're, you're right. And I was just trying to make some sort of hypothetical situation because let's suppose this thing is actually going to exist for the next 500 years, right? Let's say for for some reason now, like, you know, different, I'm, and I'm trying to just give hypotheticals, guys. These are not actual things that might happen. I'm just saying like, you need to think about these things because this, you know, our generation is going to grow out of certain issues and the next generation is going to have different issues than us. So I'm just giving hypotheticals because these are questions that were never asked in the beginning when the League of Nations was uh -huh. created right? Or when the United Nations was created, but then they ended up turning out to be realities, right? So, um, um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, first of all, okay, that thing of in just invading Congo, okay, it's... <laughs> it's a hypothetical. <laughs> it's a hypothetical. It is hilarious, but also sad. But anyway, Japan did the same to its neighbors, so that's nothing new. But also... But don't African countries already do each other dirty? Because look at it this way. Rwanda exports coltan. 
Rwanda has very little coltan deposits. Rwanda is next to Eastern DRC, where the most of those coltan deposits are. Join the dots. And then my look at Kenya, Kenya is like the United States profiting off the instability and misery of its neighbors. And that's the conversation we are not ready for because Kenya allows illicit money to flow through its financial systems, illicit firearms to flow through its borders to continue fueling the wars in South Sudan to Kenya's northeast, northwest, and to in the civil war in Somalia to Kenya's east. So Kenya profits from the civil wars in South Sudan and Somalia. But nobody talks about that. Kenya is doing its neighbors dirty. Yo, I, th and this is this is exactly what I mean, right? I mean, these are good points, right? I think when it comes to, uh, I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, no offense to the whole situation that's going on in Congo, but I'm, I mean this as a serious thing, guys. Like, it's a hypothetical, but it's a serious hypothetical, right? Because even, oh gosh, I mean, like when you're looking at, I mean, people didn't think that nationalism would become what it was in Europe in the 30s like and I'm, I'm i'm being serious about this guys when you when you're thinking about you know um all of this different um all of these different you know regional issues right within the next 500 years we don't know what the political landscape of africa is going to look like right and if there are we already know countries which have some of the biggest militaries in the world and they're present on the african continent what does that mean like and this is what i mean guys even when we're talking about the damn issue between ethiopia and egypt egypt was talking about war Let's, let's remember that, guys. Let us not forget that that was mentioned, right? So it's not like this is out of the question, right? But we have to ask and really think critically about how do we manage all of these things? How do we use shared interest to actually divert people away from, I mean, how do we incentivize good behavior over bad behavior, right? And that's the main, that's the main thing, right? And also how do we remove clowns from leadership because I'm sorry, but I totally agree in, in terms of the African Union thing, guys. It's it's actually, it's disappointing. And like when someone speaks about something like France, you know, the influence that France has on African countries, somehow they end up fired, right? But those are, as we, as we said, con like uh, topics for another day. But guys, imagine we've run out of time. Let's do quick, you know, very brief sort of conclusion from everyone and then we'll close off. Pan-Africanism has to stop being this pretty, beautiful, magical-like, nebulous thing, like a cult, and become real politic. Pan-Africanism has to stop being Africans should work together and has to start being Africans are making their own guns together. Pan-Africanism has to stop being are people in the diaspora Africans and Pan-Africanism has to start being, we're sending our best and brightest brains, we're creating scholarships to send our best brains to the best universities in the world so that they can come back and contribute to our country. Pan-Africanism has to stop being, say, talking about how Wakanda was a good movie and has to start being, building more factories and opening more embassies for diplomatic clout. Basically, Pan-Africanism has to become a real politic, very tangible things, yeah. Perfect one, Mikhail, let's go from you and then I'll also close off. Yeah, thank you. Um, my view 
Um, I would also say that Pan-Africanism needs to stop being this flower project. And um, they are saying that what holds for the future of Pan-Africanism is the agenda 2063. But I think these are just fancy terms to be used to try and show that we are going somewhere where, whereas there's a lack of political will. So I would say that we are currently experiencing an ideological crisis, that's especially in the context of Pan-Africanism. And um, I'm, I, I introspectively, um, we are having this an ideological crisis of Pan-Africanism just because um, there's lack of intentionality. We do not know why we're talking about Pan-Africanism. We don't know why we are championing for it. So um, in the words of Professor Musa Konate, he says that African unity does not necessarily have to be inspired by the European uh, Union integration model, just as we've discussed. And but he says, but by the strengthening of the South-South cooperation, just like it happened in Latin in Southern Asia, it could also work here because we have we have the same historical trajectory. And um, this South-South cooperation as well should be with these countries of Southern Asia and of Latin America. And um, a different model of political and economic model, a different model of politics and economics should also be adapted and which is more suitable for African realities because so many things do not explain our African realities. And this simultaneously should be different from the current open regionalism that I just talked about earlier on. And uh, the goal should be switching from, quote unquote, it should switch from the current African state to the African, current African states to the African state. And um, this should be done in the context of implementation where this thing is, should not be conceived for the African people, but it should also involve the African people. So instead of being conceived for the African people, it should be conceived with them. So in that case, a self-thought, a self-defined and self-financed model, which can be an antidote to the next state nation model that is in crisis. So that's what I have to give that this particular context. That's very excellent from both of you as usual. I enjoy talking to all of you. I think for me, I'll start with a quote that I posted on my Instagram yesterday, which I think holds very true. And I'm sending this one as a special message to the, the African Union and the African leaders out there today. Some African leaders say we're the leaders of tomorrow because they know they're slacking on the responsibilities of today. To the African Union and to many African leaders out there, we are disappointed. And I can tell you, I can speak on behalf of so many young people out there, we are disappointed, not only with the corruption, with the acquiescence to uh, European neocolonialism, we are disappointed because we are not seeing enough progress. And to the rest of the Africans out there, I need you to know something, we are being hunted. It is the truth, it doesn't matter by who, but we are being hunted. And we don't need to look far for advice we simply need to look at a herd of elephants to understand that in numbers, there's power. It's true. When you're being hunted by a lion, right? You're literally in herd mentality in that sense, right? We can benefit from that. So I would argue Pan-Africanism, not in the legal perspective, of course, right? I would argue for more trade, right? And we've the issues of currency, we need to look into a bit more deeply. We also need to talk about infrastructure, shared projects, incentivizing good behavior, all this different stuff. Right? That is my conception of Pan-Africanism. And yeah, guys, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be difficult work, but it's something that we have to be prepared for, right? Out of necessity, guys. We, I think that we will only benefit from actually coming together based on the fact that 
we are literally uniting against a, a world that is hunting us down. So thank you so much for this, come, coming to listen to this wonderful episode, a bit longer than usual, but I think just the more the merrier, guys. We're going to finish off, um, I think we might do a podcast next week on NSARS. We're going to try and see if we can interview a few people uh, that are on the ground. But also we're going to just talk about uh, being black in the Muslim community and uh, discrimination that some black Muslims face. But thank you so much. This has been Pariah Nation for this week. I love every single one of you guys. We're doing a lot. Um, the, the five hour live stream last night was amazing. Thank you guys for who were there um, and have a